This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I started Self Work almost six years ago now. In fact, this is episode 298. I can't believe that. I started it to extend the walls of my practice to everyone who's interested in psychological issues, but also to those of you who might be looking for answers or really don't know much. Maybe you're even a little skeptical about therapy. I wanted to try to help you learn so that maybe you would seek the help that you need, that we all need. Before we go any further today, though, let's hear the incredible offer of 42% off that Magnesium Breakthrough is making this week. One of the best things you can do to improve your health is get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. Now, I know it's hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake, your partner snores, you can't get comfortable, you wake up early and can't fall asleep again, but it's so important because your body heals itself as you sleep. Would you like to know an easy way to get more quality sleep every night? Make sure you're getting enough magnesium, believe it or not. Around 75% of people don't have enough of it, which helps explain why so many people have sleep problems. Most magnesium supplements are not full spectrum, unfortunately. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium. This is something I didn't know. And you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. So when Magnesium Breakthrough contacted me, I switched from the supplements I'd been using for a long time to theirs. And wow, what a difference. The major difference it's made for me is when I wake up in the morning at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, I can go back to sleep and it's so much better. So now I'm recommending Magnesium Breakthrough to you by Bioptimizers. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough, that's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com slash self-work to save up to, get this, a whopping 42%. Again, you can save up to 42% on Magnesium Breakthrough when you go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash self-work. I hope it works as well for you as it has for me. At this point, I'm quite happy to share this with you. My email is chock full of requests to be a guest on self-work. So how do I choose? First, I try to pick people who are down to earth and have something to offer that is usable and they don't have gimmicks. It's not some kind of one hour or one week cure, and I get a lot of those. But second, I really love to feature people who have used their own experience, and sometimes that experience involves loss or grief, to live through something that has taught them important lessons, people just like you and me. And they want to share that wisdom with all of us. Krista St. Germain is that kind of person. I'll let her tell her story, but I think you'll be surprised at some of what she has to say. She actually studied to become a life coach in order to try to learn what she needed to do to work through her grief. And she began a podcast so that she, just like me, could reach more people who were also widows and moms. She focuses on post-traumatic growth, 
But she stresses that post-traumatic growth doesn't involve romanticizing trauma, somehow trying to convince yourself or others that your trauma was something that you're supposed to be glad happened. Not at all. But what you do with it is important. You'll hear her use an analogy I really liked. It won't make sense if I give it to you now, but it's about a house. And she talks about there's several viable choices. But before we start with her interview, let's hear from one of the wonderful sponsors that helped me bring self-work to you, and that's BetterHelp, the online therapy service where you will be matched with a therapist within a couple of days rather than the long waiting times that you can experience due to the pandemic. I'm proud to say that BetterHelp has been a sponsor of self-work for more than two years now. They're ranked often as number one when compared with other professional therapeutic online services, and do their best to match you with a therapist that you'll feel gets you, is attuned to you, and with whom you can find the kind of help and healing you need. You can do video sessions, you can text, because BetterHelp wants to offer you the most accessible and private therapy they can. Their therapists are licensed professionals. In fact, I've received offers from BetterHelp to become one of their therapists, but self-work keeps me busy. So if you need services that are financially affordable and convenient, then trying BetterHelp may be the best choice you've ever made for yourself. And you get 10% off your first month of services if you use this link, betterhelp.com slash self-work. You know, I'm a therapist because I got good therapy, because I learned the immense value of hearing another experienced and knowledgeable perspective on my own life from someone that cared and was invested in my getting better. So try BetterHelp and get one month at a 10% discount, betterhelp.com slash Self-work. So now let's settle in and hear from the host of the Widowed Moms podcast, Krista St. Germain. Well, I appreciated you reaching out and and wanting to be on self-work. I talk a lot about grief, and I know you mm-hmm. have a particular perspective, Krista, that is very, yeah. very helpful, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Your podcast is called The Widowed Moms Podcast, so obviously there is a tragic story there. Can you tell your story? Yeah, absolutely. So, almost six years ago now, which sounds impossible as I articulate it, but my husband and I were coming home from a trip and we had driven separately and I had a flat tire and we were on the interstate. I pulled over and he wanted to help me change that tire. Very stubborn man, right? Didn't want to call AAA even though we had it. Now I'll just change it. It'll go faster. And so he was trying to change the tire on my car. Actually, he was trying to get access to the tire in the trunk. And I was standing on the side of the road and I was texting my then 12-year-old daughter to tell her we would be late because of the tire. It was just you and him on the on the. Highway. It was just me and him. Yeah. My car was parked in front of his and he had. we all had our hazard lights on. We were very safely over or so we thought to the shoulder. And a driver that we later found out had both meth and alcohol in his system huh. at 5.30 on a Sunday. Did, did not hit the brakes, did not see us, just hit the back of Hugo's car, trapped him in between our cars, and within a day, he was gone. So I went from my, my life feeling like it was at an all-time 
high. He was my second husband. First marriage did not end well. Second husband, redemption story, proof that amazing relationships are possible, sure. right? And yeah, I just felt like it was, it was just everything was going as it should be. I was 40. And then poof, it was gone, right? Gone and in a very traumatic way. Yes. So, so fast forward through an amazing therapist, but then also this kind of what I now refer to as a grief plateau where everyone was telling me I was doing great. And to them, I can understand why they thought I was doing great because I was back to functioning. I was accomplishing all the things. I was back to work. I was performing in terms of the way that our society manages or you know measures performance, but I was not feeling good. Right. I was really feeling like I was just going through the motions and and my don't mind my asking, did yeah. you was he conscious at all or did in, in the beginning he was not conscious. So right when the accident happened, he was completely unconscious. Thankfully, uh one of the passengers that pulled over in a different car was a nurse because I was, you know, obviously calling nine one one and you just don't <laughs> You don't know what to do when stuff like that happens. But she was there and she was like, he's, you know, he's not conscious, but he's, he's breathing and he has a pulse and it's going to be okay. And, you know, the ambulance came and it took forever to pull the cars apart. And um, the, the only words that he ever said after that point, when we got to the hospital and they took him out of the ambulance and wheeled him past me, he said, love of my life, I'll be okay. And that was, that was the last words that he ever said to me, but I'm so grateful for those words. Oh, of course you are. In, in the moment, I thought he meant it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it. We're going to, you know, like, don't worry. Um, but what I, I now take a lot of comfort in believing that, you know, no, he did die. That happened, but also he is okay. So, and it was a, you know, calamity of things, not only the drunk driver, but some unfortunate decisions by the doctors, even though they did their best, there were some mistakes that were made. And um, oh. yes, <laughs> not, not, not the highlight of my life. Um, but once I got kind of on the other side of it, and that took a long time, right? Sure um, and I don't mean on the other side of it as though it ends. I mean, once I got to the place where I didn't actually believe my best days were behind me, because that's what I believed for a long time, is that, well, you know, people talk about this new normal in grief. And right. what I heard was uh, nothing's ever going to be as good as it once was, but you'll get used to it, right? You'll, you'll resign yourself to this life that's less than what you wanted. Exactly. As if, you know, acceptance is equivalent to resignation, right? Exactly. Right. And I didn't have any good examples that said anything otherwise, did you have a support group of any kind of? I had an amazing therapist. That's why you decided to, to start the podcast to give other people a support. Exactly, that's exactly it. Because when I was looking for support, what I found was religious in nature in terms of groups, and mm -hmm. that didn't fit my bill. And also, what I found online was a lot of um, groups that were kind of singing the pity party and just using it as an excuse and staying stuck in it. And so it was like a lot of, I've been a widow for 10 years and I still cry every day. Right. And it, I wasn't seeing examples of how you can still miss your spouse and love your life. That is an eloquent and very poignant thing to say, because I, 
you know, in my own work, I've been a psychologist now for 30 years, and I'm a proponent of the word and, that yes. it's not you feel either this or that, you think either this or that, you believe yeah. either this or that. It yeah. is most of the time a huge and. And so, that yeah. you just said it. I can... I can grieve, I can miss my husband, and and I will do something with my life. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really realize that what I wanted was the and for a while. Part of what I was seeing, or at least how I was interpreting it, was that in order to love your life again, you can't miss them. You have to believe somehow that it happened for the best, or you know, you have to kind of force all of these silver linings on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and look for the good in it, look for the good and yeah, be grateful and find the blessings and all these things that on the inside just made me want to cry and didn't work for me at all. Susan David, who I don't know her personally at all. I've read her work and she is Mm -hmm. really wonderful. And she's written a book called emotional agility. And she talks about how there is a, her words are tyranny of positivity, that a lot of our culture believes in that you yes. have to find a reason for things to get ready to to talk with you i said i wrote down everything happens for a reason question mark and she would definitely say that's not true that it is not that any of us can live without pain and that pain is very much a balancer of joy. You found your way. Did you know that prior to this? Had you already had some kind of pain or trauma in your life that you'd already experienced this sort of, I've got to work through this, not, I don't want to put it away? Interestingly enough, the trip that we were on our way back from was for a camp for children who are blind or visually impaired. And it's something that I've been doing for more than 20 years. And it came to be because when I was in my early 20s, Uh, a friend of mine, a sorority sister and friend was murdered along with three other people. It was very public. The whole trial was televised. It it was really, really awful. And so even though she and I, she wasn't a best friend, but going through her loss, I think was like my first real, Mm -hmm. truly upsetting, (laughs) traumatic kind of experience. And one of the things that was so healing to me was to create that camp for her to do that with my friends in her memory and then to do that every year. And so I think on some level, I believed already from experience that, you know, bad things happen and you can decide what you want to do with them, right? You don't have to love them. And also you can make meaning and, you know, pay tribute and, and create goodness from darkness. So I, I think on, on a basic level, I knew that I would do that, but I also, it was different in that with his loss, I, it was hard for me to imagine being truly happy again. I really did associate so much of my happiness with what we had and our relationship. And it took me a long time to see that I, not that he wasn't wonderful because he was, um, but that I was the one and always have been who has created my experience in the world, my emotional experience. And that if I had done it then, right, if I had created happiness, that I could do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a little bit harder to learn. But I've, 
you know, like many people in helping professions would have told you that forever. I've read self-help books since I was, you know, I read a return to love when I was like 15, (laughs) you know? Um, So I think I had a lot of these concepts in my mind and maybe just have always known them as truths. And so there was a process of kind of forgetting and then coming back to like what I deeply believed. But, you know, for me, therapy was talk about it, make peace with it, get to that place where my brain could actually accept it, that it had happened, that he wasn't away on a business trip, um, that this really was my life and have someone who was a neutral third party who was willing to listen that I didn't um, feel like I was burdening, right? Because I didn't want to have those same conversations with my friends. Um, And then that took me so far, that took me back to functioning, but then I kind of stalled out a little bit. And that's when I found a coaching program. It wasn't grief specific, but it, it taught me some, some tools really that helped me understand how to, how to create with my thinking, how to make my brain work for me. I see. Right. And then, and that's what I feel like so took you, me to the next you level. Becoming a life coach is what helped you discover these skills. Completely. Self needed. And even as I was becoming a life coach, yeah, I was not intending to help widows as I was becoming a coach. I was still doing my own work. Sure. I was still thinking it would be depressing, right? Um, So it wasn't for a while. I had to do a lot of work to to realize that, oh, no, it doesn't make sense for me to do anything else. Mm. And it's not sad and depressing. What about your children? Had they one of them was 12, you said. What Mm -hmm. You had one other? And the other one was nine. Mm Mm-hmm. How did they do? How are they? Well, I think they're doing very well. Um, And partly, you know, Hugo wasn't their biological father. He was their stepfather. Okay. So I do think that's part of it. It was different for each one of them. My daughter, the 12-year-old, I think realized more so than the nine-year-old what she had lost when he died. She could see the potential of what was in the future for her with him. I see. You know, she 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 wanted him to teach her French, like French was his first language. She wanted him to teach her to snow ski and to water ski. And um, she could just see what had been lost. Mm-hmm. She could imagine. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had Versus been a real clear visualization for her. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then versus my son, who, while he definitely lost a playmate, you know, and somebody he loved to spend time with, for him, it seemed to be more about the realization that people you love die. And if Hugo could die, then what if mommy dies? Right. Right. And so it just kind of shook his whole foundation of, oh, you know, the world is not as safe as I thought at nine, Right. Um, which was a different experience for her. So for him, it was a lot of just comforting him, not telling, not lying to him. Um, right. But he would say things like, I just hope that when I die, you, you die uh, five minutes before, so I don't ever have to be without you. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of wow. things. Yeah. Yeah. So you said it took you a long time. What, what can you describe? And, and again, grief is so unique to so many different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I noticed in, in some of your publicity materials, you talked about the five stages of grief and that mm. I, I knew that too, that it was never intended to be some sort of right. prescriptive description of, of grief that they are these stages that it really was a, a Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was talking about terminally ill patients right. versus 
uh, someone who is the bereaved, and and that was not even that was well, it was her clinical experience she was talking about. She was trying to describe what she saw clinically. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so glad because I, even though I had had a pretty significant grief experience in my twenties, I had never really researched or read anything about grief. So in the early days for me, the acute grief was, you know, intense. Widow fog was intense. That's what I call it. Grief fog is probably what other people call it, but you know, your, your processing capability is tremendously diminished oftentimes, right? So you lose the ability to hold data, (laughs) Mm-hmm. and process it. And it's easy to think you're crazy. If you used to be really good at being organized, you know, and on top of the details and you could read and retain information, you could remember things, you didn't need lists. Sometimes, you know, that makes people think they're crazy. It feels like almost like cotton candy in your brain. It's kind of how it felt for me. Really? So I was I was such an avid reader and I it was so frustrating to me to try to read because I wanted to learn to support myself, that was my default was go, go to the experts who can help me, right? Read the books. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't retain. I would just read a paragraph and just nothing would soak in. Um, and that took a while before I could do that. Ironically, though, for me, and it's different for everyone, but for me, I actually was very organized when it came to the estate paperwork and all of the details that had to be managed with his death. And I think for me, that was about feeling out of control and searching for something to control. So I was just organized to the T, big binder, all the notes, everything in order, meticulous, right? It's also distraction. Oh, completely. Yeah. Distraction and, and the illusion of control and maybe some other stuff. I, you know, I don't know. Um, But yeah. And I took a good six weeks to go back to work um, I had a great employer. We, we actually worked together. But, well, it's not very long, but I, I am continually surprised at, at the amount of widows I work with who literally take a week or less. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's shocking. And for some, I, I think it's because they're avoiding it, right? Yeah. Or sometimes there's something. So you have the added psychological issue, if we want to, I, mean, I hate to even call it an issue that sounds so darn clinical, but you, you saw it happen. And so like yeah. my, my very common sense guess would be you were also dealing with nightmares and flashbacks and Flash- flashbacks. flashbacks. Oddly enough, not nightmares. Another thing that really helped me was that I had known about tapping, emotional freedom technique mm-hmm. for, I don't know, whenever Jack Canfield's book came out, and that was a long time ago, I, I had been using tapping. I had taught my kids to tap when they were little. So it had been something I'd used for a long time. So uh, that was my go-to mm-hmm. when I would have a flashback. Or even if I were like for a long time just driving and I would see someone with a flat tire on the side of the car, just even as I was driving, I would at least you know tap on my collarbone and like use that to calm myself um, or hearing ambulances, seeing CPR scenes, things like that. Yeah, we're really, we're really, really rough. Even just seeing a Durango, because that was the car he drove, seeing the front of a Durango, total trigger. Right. What happened to the driver? The driver ended up um, serving four years, three years. Um, Involuntary manslaughter was the charge that he got. We went to court um, he oh, that like for you. Well, actually really healing. Mm-hmm. He ended up pleading guilty. He wasn't going to, and then he ended up pleading guilty. 
Um, I guess in, when you do the, the, you can do a victim impact statement. And I, and I say court, it was in the courthouse, but it was really just a sentencing because he had pled guilty. So that after the sentencing, they let you say something. I didn't really know this at the time. Apparently you're supposed to say it to the judge. I didn't know this. <laughs> and um, so I and my father both spoke and it was actually really helpful for me to talk to him, to, to the man who caused the accident. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, that was a year after it had happened, mm-hmm. almost to the day. I was really in a place where I believed, I never really believed he did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't think your life is going well if it's five o'clock on a Sunday and you've got meth and alcohol in your system, right? I think you're suffering. I never really thought it was intentional. Um, and while I was mad that it happened, I, it wasn't, I wasn't so much mad at him um, and I also believed by that point that it, I didn't want it to define him. I wanted him to know what he had done and what we had lost and what the world had lost because of his decision. But I also wanted him to know that I forgave him and that I, I, I really wanted him to do his time and, and to then go live his life and make a contribution and not let this be what defined him. And so it was the opportunity for me to say that. Or more addiction or however we want to look at it. Yeah, like, you know, figure out, figure it out for yourself and then go live your life. And don't let this one thing be what makes, what sets the trajectory for who you decide to be as a human going forward, right? Because that's, that is of no value to the world and you are more than this. And so it actually felt really good. I think people were really surprised that that's what I was thinking, Mm -hmm. but it felt really good for me to work through that process for myself and then say it to him. Somehow or another, I've been thinking about asking you this question before, but when you said that, I think, okay, so you really, I don't know if you felt it and then decided not to feel it, but you sidestepped bitterness or, or becoming bitter and remaining bitter. Yeah, I just didn't see the value in it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see it as... This is the same thing happened with the doctors too, right? Because so, so basically, you know, they, they were about to prepare him for surgery. He was going to lose at least one leg, maybe both. And they needed to do some work after the surgery. So they're trying to run a pick line. And because of the damage in his leg, they tried to run it through his heart and they punctured something. Oh. And, a, and a resident was doing it under the supervision of someone who is, has a very good reputation. And so he coded, they couldn't figure out why stood there for an hour and watched them do CPR and try to bring him back and, um, you know, do all the things. And the doctor, the, the, the one who was in charge came in afterwards and he was just weeping, right. That, you know, he felt a lot of responsibility for that. It happened on his watch. It's a known complication, um, but still it happened on his watch and he was just dev- devastated by it. And, you know, I've got my stepmom in the room who's just like, so basically what you're saying is you killed him. And I don't know, but for me, I just didn't receive it that way. Like, did I want it to happen? No. Did he do it on purpose? No. Was he negligent? I don't think he was. Um, and the, And I felt that same way well, sort of, with the driver, right? Did he do it on purpose? No. Did he want it to happen? No. Was he negligent? Yeah, right? Does he need to be held to account? 
Absolutely. Am I going to invite him over for dinner? Probably not. But is it the truth of who he is? No. Is it worth me holding on to bitterness and anger, knowing that I'm the one that feels that? I'm the, I'm the one who bears the weight of that, right? And then it, it diminishes the contribution that I'm able to make to the world? Sure. No. Right? Wow. So I didn't see it in anybody's benefit to harbor that. Wow. What a great model for your kids. And certainly, you know, you remind me of a, of a couple that I worked with years ago. Uh, this is a small community, so I'll be careful. Um, sure. They also lost a very, very young child due to hospital error, medical error. Uh, after having the hospital really saved the child's life, <laughs> and that's what's yeah. different about the story. And then in trying to keep him alive, they they made some mistakes. And mm-hmm. they talked very similarly that it wouldn't honor the child who died, it wouldn't honor the doctors who were trying to do their best. Well, I, I want to, I mean, this is fascinating and I could talk about this <laughs> for hours, but I want to talk, I want to hear about your podcast and sure. experience you've had there and, and what made you start it. Yeah. So it's called the Widowed Mom Podcast and it's obviously for a pretty specific demographic, but I do, I do try to make it, you know, useful to anyone who's interested in learning about grief or post-traumatic growth, but um, you know, after doing my, after getting my own support and doing my own research and becoming a coach and learning things that, you know, I just never knew about grief. And I certainly didn't know anything about post-traumatic growth. What I've come to believe is that, you know, not only can we bounce back to the same level of life satisfaction that we had before a loss, but if we want, not because it's morally superior or because we should, but if we want We can take what we've learned from any loss, anything that we experienced as traumatic and apply it, right? And then create a life that we're even more satisfied with, that even more aligns with our values, right? Gives us deeper relationships. You know, I really like the way you're talking about it because I know that some of I have a Facebook group and they're very honest. It's a really wonderful, supportive group. And those with CPTSD Mm -hmm. uh, that have suffered chronic sexual trauma and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing in the past talk a lot about that they don't want trauma romanticized. Mm -hmm. That somehow you have this thing happen or you have this series of things happen and that some, you know, that that's going to be a good thing, you know, because you, Mm-mm. yeah. And that's not what you're saying at all. No, no. What I'm saying, I, so I live in tornado alley. Well, I don't know. It's a shifting, right? I live yes. in Kansas. It seems like it's tornadoes are going, but anyway, uh, we had a tornado a couple of months ago that, that devastated several blocks in our area, um, like an F4. And it kind of, what I, it became very clear to me that this is how I see post-traumatic growth. I see it as if, if a tornado comes and it knocks down your house, right? You didn't ask for that. It's not fun. It's not glamorous. And you can, there's nothing wrong with building a house that's very similar to what you had, right? It, it doesn't hurt anything. It's not better to build a different house. But if your house got knocked down and you had the chance to rebuild it, then you could take advantage of what you've learned in all the years that you lived in that house, right? Maybe you want more light. Maybe you want more electrical outlets. Maybe you want a different kitchen layout, right? You've learned some things. Mm -hmm. And so 
if you want to, to then redesign the house, taking into account what you've learned, that doesn't make you a better person. Mm-mm. It doesn't make you a worse person if you build the exact same house you had. It's just an option that we have, that whatever life experience is, if we want to take anything that we've learned having gone through that experience and apply it in service of what we want to get out of life and what we value, it's available. Sure. That's how I see it. I I think that's a wonderful analogy and one that's really easy to understand. And so, so what kind of experience have you had with the podcast? How long have you been doing it? Uh, 2019. Oh, yeah. 2019. So I actually started, I had coached for about a year and a half before I started the podcast. And I was kind of hesitant to start one in the beginning. I didn't really want to do that until I believed I had something of value to share. And so after coaching widows for a decent amount of time, I started seeing the trends and the themes and the same conversations. And so that was the point when I decided to launch it. Because people don't understand grief, which is a large part of what I hope to accomplish with the podcast, they come into a grief experience thinking that most of their experience is wrong and or that they are at fault for the way that they are experiencing things. Hmm. And so when you have when it's one-on-one and you're having the same conversation with someone, it's almost hard for them to believe you when you tell them there's nothing wrong with them. Right. And so eventually I decided, okay, I got to do a podcast, right? To kind of help normalize some of these things earlier, even when people aren't ready for coaching, how can I help them immediately after the loss, not feel like they're crazy and figure out how to support themselves and learn how to allow their feelings and some of those kind of basic things. And then Later, it also kind of switched to I stopped coaching one-on-one and I started coaching in groups because that's the same thing I was seeing is that I think there's such power in community that if, mm-hmm. of course, they will always think the person who is helping them is some sort of special snowflake or unicorn, <laughs> right? <laughs> but when they see it in their peers and they see other widows struggling the same way that they're struggling and they see themselves, right, then it's so much easier for them to go, oh, it's not me, there's nothing wrong with me. Sure. This is grief, right? This is common. And then I've just experienced that we can make progress so much faster because we're normalizing so much of the experience. And then we can really uncover, okay, where might this person be uniquely blocked mm-hmm. um, or use some support? And, well, and you've got um, lots of wisdom yeah. in that room. So I see a very consistent um, period where people feel for the most part, depending on the family dynamics and the community support, and that's not there for everyone by any means, but for most people who do have a decent amount of family and community support, there's a period of rallying, Mm -hmm. right? Where everyone comes to their aid. Everyone does everything. People come out of the woodworks to help. You don't even know what to ask for the help for. Right. Mm -mm. And then for a lot of people, then the next phase is people pull away and forget and they think you're doing okay. You look like you're doing okay. Um, Or they've never been in your shoes before. So they can't imagine the difference between how you look and how you feel. And also they begin to inaccurately think that they can do harm by bringing it up. Yes. So they will avoid it because they think that's in service of you. They think that's helpful sometimes, or, you know, maybe they don't have the capacity to 
allow you to feel how you feel and then, you know, take care of themselves and be okay with that. What I have seen over and over again, or at least maybe it's, it's what I'm telling myself I see. Because mm-hmm. I, I like to somehow hang on to the idea, although therapists hear about a lot of evil in the world, I, I also like to believe that people are good or can be good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they get afraid. I think people mm-hmm. get afraid to get too close to pain that doesn't go away. It yeah. scares them. Yeah. And so they distance because of fear as well. I agree. And and I definitely did that myself before this happened. I, I can now go back and see all of the things that I said that I wish I hadn't and ways that I behaved that I wish I could do over. And it was definitely coming from a fear, a lack of comfort with emotion. Um, yeah. And just, it also sometimes uh, not only fear for myself and my discomfort with the depth of that pain, but also my worry that I would make it worse as though that were possible. I see. So do you wonder what Hugo would say to you at this point? It's funny. He was a very much a scientist. He was an engineer. And so he, this idea of life coaching, he would have thought I was nuts. (laughs) Right. So we worked together at the same company, um, an, an aviation manufacturing company and he was just very analytical and, you know, had a spiritual side, but not, <laughs> we laugh about it. It's so funny too, because his first wife um, also is a life coach and we both have joked about it since he died, right? He would have thought we were both off of our rockers. But I also know that even though he wouldn't have really understood what I do, he would be so proud of me for having done it right? And for how I'm living, um, for sure. And I hear his voice all the time. You know, every time my last name is very complicated because he was French and spelled with a hyphen, St. Germain, but with a hyphen. And he always told me, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret taking my last name. And so every time I'm in a hotel and I can't figure out my Wi-Fi password because it's my last name and they can't figure out the hyphen or the dot or the space or the capital, it's, you know, I know he's laughing and enjoying himself <laughs> at my expense. Yeah. Well, I love talking. I'm sure self-work listeners are just fascinated by this. And as I am, as soon as I saw your material, I thought I really want to talk to this woman. And um, I feel like I might know Hugo when he walked in the door. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like a very interesting. He's a spitfire. And the fact that he loved you enough that he wanted you to know that in his last thing that he could say. I mean, that's just really, he obviously did. So I'm sure you did him. How can self-work listeners find you? Or self-workers sometimes call them. I love that. I love that. (laughs) I I identify with that. Um, Certainly come and listen to the podcast, the Widowed Mom podcast, even if you're not a widow or a mom, right? If you want to learn about grief or post-traumatic growth, I think there's something there for you. And then all of my socials can be found at my website, which is coachingwithkrista.com. I also have a free course on my website. If anybody's looking to learn just, you know, some basics about grief, um, they can, can get that free course on my website too. Great. Well, again, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again for being here at Self-Work. It means more to me than you know. And you must be sharing Self-Work with your friends because we're growing by leaps and bounds. 
We've already reached a million downloads as of this year. That's incredible. I wanted to read this review today. I love your soothing voice, positive outlook and energy and encouragement. I actually listen to this podcast when I go to sleep and wake up with a headphone in my ear. Thank you. You know, I hear a lot from people about that, and it's kind of funny to me. I'm not sure quite how to take it. <laughs> but if my voice is soothing, then that's really great. So thank you for saying that. And if I can add calm to your day, then I'm happy about that. Please leave a review, a written review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to self-work. And of course, if you've read my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, and are trying some of the over 60 exercises that are included in the book, let me know by leaving a rating or review on Amazon. That would be fantastic. Thanks again for being here. Please take very good care of yourself, of those you love, and of your community. It's very important in these days and times to treat each other with compassion and kindness. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.